0: Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Why do you Catholics have a Pope? I mean, doesn't that just seem so? hierarchical, political. He's like the CEO of your church, and he's just barking out orders, telling you what to do, telling you what to believe. I mean, shouldn't human beings just be free, free to decide for themselves, their own religious values, their own spiritual values, their own moral standards? Why do we need a Pope telling us what to do? Can't we just be spiritual on our own and just let God guide us? through our own prayer and maybe even our own reading of our own sacred texts? Why do I need a pope? Well, my friends, how confident would you be answering those kinds of questions? Because that's the mindset of our modern age, that we want to be free and independent and decide things for ourselves. Why do we need a papacy guiding us and giving us teaching? to follow. Well, this is a great week to be thinking about these questions because in the Catholic Church on February 22nd, we celebrate the feast of the chair of St. Peter. This is a great feast day that celebrates the great teaching authority that Jesus gave to Peter and his successors, the popes. So I want to help us answer these questions. I'm going to give you a number of keys from scripture where you can explain the papacy from the Bible with great clarity and with great confidence and Guess what? All of the keys I'm going to give you are found in one biblical passage packed in here. Jesus says many things that tell us something very important about the papacy. Let's unpack that passage. It comes in Matthew chapter 16. And I want to I give you the background of this great scene. So picture this. You are one of the apostles, and you are there with Jesus, and you go to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is the farthest north we know Jesus traveled, at least recorded in Scripture. And while he's there, Jesus asks all of you, all of you 12 apostles, he asks you a question. Who do people say that I am? And it's like the first Gallup poll on Jesus, you know, and the apostles come back and say, oh, well, you know, 37% say you're John the Baptist, 32% think you're Jeremiah, 28% think you're another prophet, and 5% are undecided. <laughs> you know, they kind of all give this little, uh, what what the word on the street is, they, they report that back to Jesus. But then Jesus makes the question very personal. Picture him looking in your eye, and he says to you, who do you say that I am? That's nice to know what everybody out in the world thinks about me. But now I want to know what you all think. You, my 12. Who do you say that I am? And then as you're there, you're thinking about how you would answer. Suddenly you notice one of the 12 stepped forward. It's your friend Peter. Peter steps forward and he answers. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and all of you are astonished at this. Peter's the first one to come right out and say, you are the Christos, the Greek word for the anointed one. In other words, you are the Messiah. Everyone's been hoping Jesus is the Messiah. They've been probably guessing he's the Messiah. But Peter's the first one to just come right out and say it. And Jesus accepts that title. But then he does, a number of amazing things with Peter. Let's think about this. First of all, he he tells Peter that, you know, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You've been given great insight from my heavenly Father to see my true identity as the Christos, the anointed one and the Son of the living God. Then he says, I'm going to change your name. He tells Peter that your name is going to go through a change here. From now on, you shall be called Peter, but you, uh, before we even get to the name Peter this man who was previously known as Simon uh, is getting a name change and if that's all we learned we didn't even know it was Peter I want I want you just to note that that would be really significant because simply a name change that alone is a great moment for many people in the Bible a name describes not just uh, the title of a person what you address them as no no it, it actually describes something about their very identity and their mission and people often get a name change when they're going to play a crucial role in God's plan. So, for example, Abram in the Old Testament gets his name changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, when he's given the great covenant to be the father of a multitude of nations. Similarly, uh, Jacob is uh, is given a name in the book of Genesis. He's going to be called Israel when he is going to be set up as the head of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So name changes describe a change in the person uh, that they're going to play a very important role in God's plan of salvation. So if we never even learn that Simon's name was changed to Peter, all we learned was that this guy got a name change that day. That alone would make us as readers go, wow. Peter is being set apart. Peter is being sent on a very important mission from God. But guess what? We learn what the name is. Jesus goes on to tell us that the name is going to be Peter. Now, I want to just... Ponder this name, Peter. You may know someone named Peter. You may have a friend named Peter. You may have a relative ma- named Peter. Peter is a very popular name today. Uh, in English, we have the name Peter. You have it in Spanish, Pedro. We say Pierre in French, Pietro in Italian. Very popular name. Thousands and thousands of people have been named Peter over the last 2,000 years. But I want you to know that in the first century world of Jesus and the apostles, this was not a common name at all. Uh, the name itself means rock. So picture it would be kind of like if Simon all of a sudden was told, your name is going to be changed to mountain. Like mountain isn't a common name in our world. <laughs> You'd be thinking, wow, that's that's a strange name. That must tell us something very important about who this man is going to be for Jesus. Jesus wants this man to be a solid, strong rock, a foundation for his church. But what rock does Jesus have in mind? Uh, there are many theories about this, but I think the one that is most in the in, in the forefront of Jesus' mind is the most famous rock in all of Israel in Jesus' day, the Eben Shediah, the foundation stone of the temple. So this was a very important stone, important rock, right at the holiest spot on the face of the earth, right there, in Jerusalem at the temple, and the Jews told many stories about this rock. There were many stories and legends that had been built up over the years about this rock, that it was believed that not only was the temple built over this foundation stone, but Noah's Ark found rest at the Eben Sharia, the foundation stone. David had battled monsters there. Uh, Lots of great stories. These are are just traditions, uh, legends that were built up. But I just want to give you a sense that this was a very important rock. And one of the most important things I want you to take away about this rock is this. One of the common stories told by the ancient Jews about this rock that was there at the foundation stone of the temple is that underneath that rock, there was a shaft that went down into the underworld. And, and this, this stone, this foundation stone at the, at, the, at the foundation of the temple was what plugged up that shaft it, and it kept the powers of hell at bay. And and so the idea was that there was a shaft that went down to the underworld and all that's where the demons were. And this rock kept the demons from taking over the world. And, And all the sacrifices and prayers that were offered there in the temple and the blood that was poured out over the rock and went down into the shaft. This is what kept the powers of hell at bay. Why do I think Jesus had this particular rock in mind the most? Because think about what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Simon, You shall be called Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, he's not just changing it to rock in general, he's changing his name to a a rock, a rock that's going to be the foundation of his church. And he specifically says, The gates of hell will not prevail against this rock and against this church. Well, which rock? Would, would Jesus have in mind? Which rock was known for keeping the powers of hell at bay? The Eben Sharia, the foundation stone. In other words, he's saying to Peter, Peter, you're going to be like that rock. You're going to be like the foundation stone of the temple, the new temple I'm building, the church. Isn't this cool? This is all right here. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 20 to get the full account of this dramatic scene of Peter's name change. But I want to tell you a little more background here. There's something even e- even more exciting here. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a great parable about a wise man who builds his house on rock. And that's contrasted with the foolish man who builds his house on sand. And when the storms come, the house on sand, well, you know, falls, it falls down. But when the storms come and and fall, and, 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 and there's a uh, the, the house on rock, the house on rock will withstand the storms. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 gives that account. Well, I want you to understand that parable in light of the first century Jewish world, because if you talked about a wise man, who especially a wise man who built his house on rock, you would be thinking about a very specific person. Can you think about who that is in the Old Testament? Who was the one man that stands out for wisdom. He was known as the wisest man. People from all over the world came to sit at this wise man's feet to learn from his wisdom. Who was that man? King Solomon. King Solomon was known for his great gift of wisdom that God gave him. He was a great son of David who was a wise man, and he was the one who built the temple of the Lord. He built God's house. And what did he build God's house on? On the Eben Shediah, on the foundation stone of the temple. So just think about that. Solomon is the wise man, the son of David. He built God's house, the temple, on rock, on the foundation stone. Who is Jesus? Jesus describes himself as a new Solomon. Something even greater than Solomon is here, he says in Matthew 12, 42. And and who is Jesus? He's a son of David. He's the new wise man, the new son of David, the the new Solomon. And what is he doing? He's building his new temple, the church. And what's he going to build it on? He's going to build it on rock, on Peter, just like so- Solomon built his temple on the Eben Sharia, the foundation stone that kept the powers of hell at bay. So Jesus is going to build his new temple, the church, on the new Eben St. Peter, the apostle, the rock that will keep the powers of hell at bay. My friends, we're just getting started here. These are are just some of the basic little insights you find in Matthew chapter 16 that shed so much light on the papacy. So remember, the name itself, first of all, the name itself is, is greatly significant, pointing to a change in Peter, the change in his mission. The name Peter itself is significant. It tells us that he's not just, this isn't just any ordinary name. This is a significant name change because Peter was never a name before. It tells us Jesus must have some kind of rock in mind. Thirdly, what rock would he have mind, the Eben Sharia, that's confirmed fourthly by the parable about the wise man who builds his house on rock and withstands the storms. Jesus is that wise man, that new Solomon, who builds his house on Peter the rock, and this church of the new temple will withstand the storms that come no matter what happens. You may be wondering, wow, the church is going through some rough times in recent months and recent years. And you may be thinking, wow, there's all these storms out there. Remember Jesus' promise that nothing will destroy this house that's built on rock on Peter. But let let me share two more things. Two more things. One small point and then one really big punchline. Are you ready? So uh, the small point is Jesus says to Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in, in heaven uh, this is rabbinic language describing the authority that a rabbi, a teacher, official teacher of Judaism would be given to make doctrinal decisions and, and also have disciplinary powers. So the language of binding and loosing also points to the authority that Peter is being given here. So do you see Peter is being elevated among the twelve. He's the one that gets the name change. He's the one that's going to be the rock uh, upon which the new church or the new temple the church will be built. He's the one being given this, this mission of binding and loosing. The other apostles are going to also get that role of binding and loosing. But Peter gets it first and he gets it in this singular way right here in Matthew chapter 16. But the key to it all right here in Matthew 16 is the image of the keys of the kingdom. If you ever go to Rome, uh, I love showing pilgrims just how many keys there are. Everywhere you go in all these churches, you see paintings with keys in them. You see emblems with keys in them. You see statues of Peter holding keys. Keys are everywhere in Rome. I think there's like thousands of key images in Rome. Uh, And why is the image of the key associated with the papacy? Uh, Well, some people wonder about that. Where is this? Where do we get this idea? And people say, well, keys symbolize authority. And I would just come right back and say, well, where do you get that? Where is that in the Bible? Is that just your own interpretation because you happen to be Catholic? And so you think it has to do with authority? Show that to me in Scripture. Prove to me that that's what Jesus intended when he said to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. How do we know that that really has to do with authority? Well, I want to tell you. These images, this image of the key is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in, in the rooted in the Jewish mindset. Jesus didn't randomly think about, okay, I need an image and I need to show the important role of the papacy. So I'll come up with keys because one day the popes will have to drive in a Popemobile around St. Peter's Square and bless people. And, and so we'll come up with keys to be an image of the future mobile that'll come in, in the 20th century. Well, sorry, that's not what this is about. Uh... Jesus didn't come up with this image right there at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16. He was drawing on a very important image that God had already given to the Israelites centuries before Christ came. It's found in Isaiah chapter 22. This is a biblical image. So if you want to understand what keys of the kingdom mean, you must understand the biblical symbolism. I want to ground this in sacred scripture. We're not just going to make this up. This is just what I think keys mean for me. I want to know what did it mean for the Bible. What did it mean for the Jewish mindset in Jesus's uh, Jesus's day? So let's talk about that. Isaiah chapter 22 tells about the very important role of the al-bay'it. He was the head of the household uh, for the king or the master of the palace. Some people translate it the prime minister. So there was the king who had the authority to reign, but every king had an al-bay'it. Uh, the person that was in charge of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. Uh, He was, again, like the prime minister. Uh, He was not the king. He has no authority on his own, but the king vests him with authority to take care of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. And the role of the al takes on great importance, especially when the king is away. So in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15, we read about uh, one of these stewards or masters of the palace or prime ministers, the al it's a man named Shebna, and he's going to be stepping out of office, and another man, Eliakim, is going to uh, assume this role. But what we read about in chapter 22 of Isaiah, verse 19, is that this is not a one-time appointed position. This is an official royal office, an office in the kingdom. And he's given a robe in verse 21, which symbolizes his authority. Verse 21 explicitly mentions that this man has authority. He's described as a father to the citizens of Jerusalem and Judea. So he's like a father to the citizens in the kingdom. Uh, And in verse 22, the symbol of his great authority is the keys, the keys of the kingdom. And so if you think about this background, when Jesus turns to Peter and says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, he's saying a lot. He's saying, you're going to be my prime minister. Think about it. Jesus has been announcing a great kingdom. He clearly is the great king, the true son of David. He's just accepted the title Messiah, anointed one uh... from peter here so he is the true king and if he's going to be the king of Israel, what does he need? He needs a prime minister because that's the biblical model. The kings had their al their prime minister, who were in charge of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. So when he tells Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom, he's saying, you're my prime minister. You're the one that's going to have the royal authority. You're the one that's going to be like a father, a spiritual father to the citizens of Jerusalem and Judea, the citizens of the kingdom. Think about that. What do we call the successor of Peter today? We call him Pope. What is, what is, where, where does the word Pope come from? Papa, Father. Well, why do we call the Pope Father? Was it because, well, he's like a priest, and he's like a super priest in charge of all the priests, so we call him Holy Father. Well, yeah, but really, it's biblical. Isaiah chapter 22 makes this clear that the great al the prime minister Was a father to the citizens of the kingdom. So it's biblical that we call the Holy Father, Pope Francis, we call him Papa, Holy Father, because he's the successor of Peter. He is the father father of all the citizens of the kingdom. Now I want to be clear: the Pope has no authority on his own, just like the Albaid of the Old Testament had no authority on his own. The, The king has all the authority but he entrusts his kingdom into the hands of men. That's what the Old Testament explicitly tells us, and Jesus does the same thing. He's going to entrust his kingdom into the hands of these fallible, weak, fearful men, these 12 apostles, and he's going to establish Peter as playing the crucial role as the head of the 12. The keys of the kingdom tell us so much. Peter is the alba'it He's the master of the palace, the prime minister, and his role will take on the greatest importance when the king goes away. Because that's what would happen in the Old Testament when the king would go away on a military campaign or a diplomatic mission. Who was in charge of the kingdom while the king was away? It was the al It was the prime minister. So Jesus is about to go away. He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise from the dead and then ascend to heaven. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, look at Acts the Apostles. Who's in charge? God's in charge ultimately, but who's He working through? It's Peter. Peter is the one that assumes the role of leadership among the twelve. He's the one that says we got to choose Judas's successor. He's the one preaching there at Pentecost. He's the one that uh, is is making the decisions at the great council of Jerusalem about how the Jews, or how the the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in, in order to become Christians. So Peter is assuming the role of the al bayit, and all the other apostles, of course, are going along with it. Because they know the biblical model. They know that Peter was given by Jesus the keys of the kingdom. Well, my friends, there's so much here in Matthew chapter 16. And I'm just scratching the surface, but I gave you a number of key points that I hope you can take away. And this week as we're thinking about the great teaching authority that Jesus gave to Peter and the successors of Peter, uh, the great popes. Uh, thanks so much for listening here. I want to give a shout out to my new friends in Dubai. Uh, I was blessed to go to Dubai this month for a one day trip. Uh, it was short lived, but it was a wonderful experience. I met thousands uh, of wonderful Catholics there. There were about 1,200 catechists uh, who are out there serving. Uh, many of the the Christian communities throughout Southern Arabia. So may God bless you. Thanks for listening. Uh, I also want to let you all know if you want a sneak peek of my new program on the Passion of Christ, No Greater Love, a biblical walk through Christ's passion, you can get a sneak peek now. The trailer is out. You can go to ascensionpress.com to take a look at that. And there's also a free episode that you can look at as well online there. And if you have any questions, you can always reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or on my website. And if you haven't done so, please write a review. I'd greatly appreciate that as well. Thanks so much, and God bless.